Where to now is? Home. Home? The TARDIS. Yes, the TARDIS. There are worlds out there where the sky is burning, where the seas asleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Some of there's danger, some of there's injustice. And somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace. We've got work to do. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. My name is Rob. And I'm Mark. And tonight we're going to be taking a safari through the wilderness years. But before that, a joke. I say, I say, I say. How many Doctor Who fans does it take to change a light bulb? None. They're all just waiting for it to come back on. Was that a tumbleweed? No, that was the latest missing episode announcement passing us by. So before we launch into tonight's uh, main topic, Rob, there's been a bit of a casting announcement over the last week uh, with a new character called Danny Pink. What are your thoughts on this uh, interestingly named character? Yes, uh, hopefully he doesn't have the same characteristics as Mr. Pink from Reservoir Dogs. Or Lily the Pink, <laughs> as in the song. Yes, no, the BBC uh, announced uh, a new, uh, I suppose, companion. It's probably a bit too early to say. Uh, by the name of Denny Pink. Now, given that Stephen Moffat is a former teacher, um, giving his giving his new character, who is a teacher apparently, the surname Pink, just opens you up to all sorts of abuse from your students. So um, maybe he'll be channeling some of that, uh, some of the uh, commentary that he he copped when he was a when he was a teacher back in the day. But uh, I think as we discussed uh, uh, when Capaldi was uh, cast last year. Um, that having an older actor would make that dynamic of, you know, the companion lust, lusting after the pretty boy doctor uh, slightly creepy. Uh, so we all we both thought that perhaps um, the production team would cast a male companion of roughly the same age as the, um, as the romantic interest uh, now that, you know, uh, Matt Smith uh, is no longer in the lead. So, and it's come to pass by the looks of it. Um, now, you know, given that uh, Clara, I think, appears to be a history teacher judging by the reference to Marcus Aurelius in Day of the Doctor at the start of that episode in the classroom. Any, any chances that Danny perhaps is the, uh, the biology teacher or just the general science teacher at the Coal Hill uh, School? So you're thinking a bit of uh, Ian and Barbara recreation there? Well, I mean, they've, they've, they've gone back to the well, uh, you know, with, with having uh, Clara working as a teacher on and off, I suppose, in between trips uh, at Coal Hill. Um, you know, it, you know make, I suppose it makes sense. It, it worked in 1963. Uh, can't see it not working in uh, 2014. But, uh, but were you, I mean, I, I've not seen anything that the uh, the, the actor's been in. But um, you know, I suppose I suppose they're not going to they're not going to you know uh, hire a hack. I'm looking forward to seeing this uh, latest uh, reincarnation of the new series with uh, Capaldi and Co. in tow. So um, yeah, roll on August. I mean, if they do hook up Clara and Danny Pink, it may lend new meaning to the term "sinking the pink." Whether that actually makes the final edit of this podcast, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but it, it, it's it's interesting that the production team. I mean, if that's the way they're going to go down, the, the production team seems to think that uh, having a romantic subtext to everything year in year out, uh, you know, helps the uh, the show and the public eye, helps with the ratings. Um, 
is it are they just sort of you know flogging a, ho- a dead horse again or um is is it a valid approach to take you know in the 21st century i don't think they're flogging a dead horse they have a, obviously have the demographics and there's a demographic of the audience who enjoys the um subdued romant- romantic comedy side of things what is it uh, unresolved sexual tension they they call it in the 90s between Mulder and Scully on the X-Files well, as, as you said, there'll be a section of the audience that will pine for that sort of thing and having it sort of on display week in, week out as they... No doubt, you know, there's a bit of rivalry between the two of them and then, you know, the, there's misunder, misunderstandings and then they, they have a, a moment in an adventure when they realise that they need one another and that turns their relationship around. And then by episode 13, they're, uh, they're married. It's like a science fiction version of uh, Moonlighting, isn't it, really? Yes. Uh, well, yes, except... I don't think Danny Pink is anywhere as good as Bruce Willis. Or Sybil Shepherd. What's she doing now? Uh, 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 convention circuit, probably. The Moonlighting Convention Circuit, which is all the go these days. Coming to a hub production near you. <laughs> Along with the the guy who played the human in Megloss. Personally, I'd prefer the cactus. So, I mean, that was... Uh, I mean, there's not much really to say at the moment. I mean, Danny, there's a photo and all that sort of thing. And, you know, he looks very sort of, you know... Uh, handsome and all that sort of thing. I don't think there are any ugly people in Doctor Who these days, frankly. There are no people with the traditional British mid-20th century teeth, that's for sure. Austin Powers is not available. No, not available. But uh, the other bit of news that uh, swept uh, through the uh, fandom uh, since our last episode was um, the uh, the missing episode panel at Gallifrey 1 and the interview that some of the uh, participants uh, did with uh, the, the, one of the gentlemen from Radio Free Scaro the next day. For the people who haven't heard it, who were the participants, uh, Rob? Was it Steve Roberts? Steve Roberts. My mate, Steve Roberts. Damien Shanahan, a well-known Australian uh, fan uh, in uh, the northern states. John Preddle and one of the guys from the Others podcast. Very good podcast, by the way, if anyone wants to listen, listen in. Uh, so they were actually, because for reasons that are still beyond me, Gallifrey One did not bother to record in audio or visual from... Oh, no, the audio anyway of this particular panel. Um, So instead, uh, the boys from uh, Radio Free Scarrow interviewed them. And and Steve Roberts' contribution at the start of that particular podcast uh, in which he basically... Did he debunk... The broad sweep of the Omni Rumor? I think at the beginning of the panel, he got a, he got a piece of paper out and he started debunking all these rumors. Yes. I mean, some of them are quite silly in terms of they've recovered the original episodes three and four of uh, Planet of Giants, for example. Yes. He was passing it line by line and then promptly tore the piece of paper in half for dramatic effect. Yes, which I think amused uh, the people who were in the audience uh, on that day. And set a fire under a large number of, well, Twitter, Twitter and you know participants on Planet Planet Mondas, particularly other forum. If you go on all the different forums, uh, Doctor Who archive, Apascaro, Planet Mondas, there's a there's a hardcore of fans who are you know um, who are posting on each of these different forums. So it's basically the same people having the same conversation at different stages of the day on different forums. And a lot of those people are very, very angry at members of the restoration team for perceived slights, for perceived lies, deceptions, and all that sort of thing. They, they refer to them uh, as Ubers, as in Uber fans. And it just the level of anger... Vitriol? Vitriol and anger towards, you know, say, Steve Roberts or Paul Venezis, um is a little... It's just breathtaking. I mean, it, it, it's not nothing unusual in fandom. I mean, you, you look at the hate towards the McCoy years as evidenced in the 1990s and you just you, you can see where this, where it all comes from because just fans just love to hate 
I don't know. And I don't know why. And uh, Steve Roberts, I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, heard that Steve Roberts had torn this piece of paper up were, you know, were just loudly criticising him for it, for just a bit of, you know, stage acting or, you know, playing up to the audience. He should have actually burnt an episode. That would have been a much more dramatic effect. He should have come out with a film can and just set it on fire. Singing, um, burning down the house or something. Because they would have, they would have set certain melt, uh, forums into a complete and utter meltdown that would have rivaled Chernobyl. The, 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 the important thing that came out of uh, not only the panel, but also the interviews the next day in the Radio Free Scarrow podcast was that Steve Roberts basically calmly and cogently came out and said, look, as, f- as far as he is concerned and, and is aware, and why wouldn't he be aware, Phil Morris has not handed anything over to the BBC other than the, those, uh, the, you know, the enemy of the world and the web of fear. And whilst he, Steve Roberts' personal belief, is uh, a heavy suspicion that uh, Phil Morris has found, say, Marco Polo, um, he's got no proof of that. And then until something you know comes back to the BBC whenever that's going to be it's only a very good guess on his part and it's all down to uh, his guess is based on the amount of sales copies that were made and distributed and potentially they might have recovered a copy or three from any of those countries so it's just I suppose he's trying to work out a law of averages isn't he well exactly I mean I remember reading that Marco Polo was sold you know 17 times or something like that so and it is the only story from I think the first two seasons that doesn't exist at all and um, it's just I suppose it's as you say you you play the odds and it's rather remarkable that nothing of it has been found yeah so I mean the main takeaway I took from that was that you know other than the interesting uh, behind the scenes look at you know the restoration process which gave us um, of those two stories that did come back gave us a bit more in-depth look at how that was was gone about um, the only other thing was, you know, he, he believes that there, there may be more to come. And given the lack of announcement, A, from Phil Morris and his company, uh, and B, from the BBC, either way, um, it would, I mean, that helps fuel the rumour, but it also lends a bit of belief to the fact that, um, to the possibility of more coming back. If there's no definitive denial uh, at this stage, you know, four or five months since October, then perhaps, you know, there's something in motion, very slow motion, but in motion at the moment. Well, Phil Morris keeps saying expect the unexpected, which is uh, sort of like his version of JNT Stay Tuned, isn't it? It is. I mean, I suppose you can... I mean, there are a lot of frustrated fans out there, and they've been told to expect the unexpected since, well, October. Um, and Phil Morris has been deliberately... Uh, well, coy is not the right word, but deliberately bland in any statements that he's made in any interviews at, say, Excel or in Starburst or in DWM. Um, which, you know, a lack of information fuels the fire and fuels the ire uh, of certain fans. But, I mean, some of the some of the carry-on that went... I mean, we talked about this before. Some of the carry-on that went on after Steve Roberts' appearance uh, was... It's embarrassing. You know, these people are adults who, who are carrying on, like, you know, pork chops on uh, on, on forums, and it, it does them no credit, and it does, it does fandom uh, generally no credit to be, you know ridiculous ridiculous in their pronouncements their, their, their hate hate is not too strong a word to describe some of the the reaction that went on um and if if i would say if if anyone is actually listening to what i'm saying i'll just say to them calm down because there's, there's no there's no need for it really so we just have to wait see what happens at uh, easter time well given it was like how many years was it two 11 years 12 years since you know the, the previous complex story was found with tomb of the cyberman mm. i mean fandom knows it is practiced in waiting it knows how to wait so 
Uh, we're just going to have to wait, basically. Speaking of waiting, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the wilderness years, that uh, supposedly barren stretch of time uh, in between the uh, the screening of Survival and when the show came back with a little TV movie uh, interruption. I just love how uh, Doctor Who fans romanticise it a bit and uh, call it the wilderness years. It sounds like an American soap, doesn't it, really? And it was a bit like a soap opera, the whole uh, cancellation and, and resurrection. Well, it was. I mean, unlike uh, 985 with the BBC actually told people what was going on and said uh, we're cancelling this no we're suspending it uh, when uh, survival went out instead of the uh, I suppose the customary uh, announcement sometime afterwards that the, the next season had been commissioned uh, the BBC learned its lesson from 85 and basically cancelled the series by stealth insofar as they said nothing other than we're working perhaps towards uh, bringing it back uh, when it's ready and potentially uh, be made by an independent company and there were a lot of uh, independent companies at that stage sort of circling uh, around I mean uh, Verity Lambert's uh, production company Terry Nation and, and, and Jerry Davis and also uh, Saffron Productions which was uh, run by Victor Pemberton the wilderness years which I suppose is, is a term that's sort of come up uh, since the show came back it does suggest that there was very little going on when in actual fact uh, in terms of fan input into uh the show or the show's history um it 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 really did actually just that was almost the fact that the show wasn't on uh and the show being on was sort of crowded fan uh activities out that the absence of the show allowed a huge uh wellspring of fan uh you know creation basically and reappraisal as well the classic series well that's right i mean uh at that time well i mean obviously the, the 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 vhs's had been going coming out since the early 80s but they sort of accelerated during the 90s um, as the BBC, whilst it wasn't willing to um, to invest in, uh, well, either allow a production company to take up the rights or to invest in it themselves, they were quite happy to exploit um, the, the, the very rich catalogue, a back catalogue that the show, show had at that time. I think there was a press conference in 93 when it was supposed to be announcing The Dark Dimension, and I think it was unofficially confirmed that when a Doctor Who's title was uh, being sold on VHS, it actually recouped its production costs. So it was making cash many times over through overseas sales and also now on VHS. Which is, I suppose is no surprise given the, the paucity of repeats in, the, in, in Britain uh, of you know stuff from the 60s and 70s mm. uh, that fans would want to buy part of that history. Uh, that, I mean, And they certainly voted with their, their wallets and their purses, uh, as you say. I mean, being able to recoup, I suppose, the original production costs through a single VHS release is pretty remarkable when you think about it. But, I mean, at that time, uh, the, the target novelizations uh, were coming to an end, and I think, they were, I think they were being edited by Nigel Robinson, who had taken the approach of actually allowing perhaps the original writers or the writers who came in to expand the text, expand the script. So he had some really good work coming out of from people like, say, uh, Ben Aronovich, who, who did his own uh, novelization for Remembrance, which in itself possibly set the template up for the new adventures. And with the target novelization sort of uh, uh, coming to an end, um, I suppose it was, it was Virgin Books who, who, who gained the right to uh, produce original fiction. And more or less, with, uh, some, most of their early authors were fans. They, 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 you know, they, obviously, they had Terence Dix come in and do a very strong uh, book uh, near the start. Yeah, it was fantastic. But, I mean, they had David... Uh, was it David J. Howe? No, it was... Um, John Peel was the first one. Then Uncle Terence was the second one. Then Nigel Robinson was the third one. Mm-hmm. 
and then the fourth one was uh, Paul Cornell. That's right, and and Paul Cornell, Paul Cornell's book more than the previous three, set that template for. Exp- I mean, you know, the, the whole Virgin thing was deeper and broader than um, than the TV series, and what Cornell did did then, and Cornell himself was a rising, had been a rising, you know, fan writer in in fanzines in the in the eighties and early nineties. What he did was, you know, sort of t- took that credo. And ran with it, and uh, I mean, if you, I, mean, I suppose, if you read Time Where Revelation now, it sort of reads more like a typical teenage thing that's heavy, heavy in symbolism and all that sort of thing that a lot of teenagers are sort of into. But uh, it did, I think, influence the way that um, that other fan writers uh, approached um, the Virgin books. I mean, you had writers like Kate Orman going down the same path with the left-handed hummingbird, who who, who made the Doctor a more or less approachable figure who did things in truly alien ways. And I suppose that appealed to a lot of fans, in actual fact. It allowed them to sort of... I mean, a lot of... I think we've discussed this before, that, you know, fans of a certain age take the show very seriously. And perhaps the TV show in its latter years didn't live up to that sort of... their their, their wishes or hopes for it. And the books offered them that opportunity. And there was a certain certain hardcore of fans who, who loved that approach. How many of the uh, Virgin books did you read when they uh, when, when, the, when the range kicked off? Did you go right to the end or did you drop off? I um, have a distinct rem- memory of reading St Anthony's Fire um, in the mid-90s because I remember I was reading it at a night job I had and not being overly impressed with it and sort of thinking, well, I'm spending this money and I'm not getting the reward for effort. I mean, I enjoyed uh, some of the very early books. Again, mm. Time Worm Revelation and Left Handed Hummingbird. Not only were they entertaining, but they're also um, good writing. I think it's it's a real pity that Kate Orman, for instance, um, for any number of reasons, hasn't taken off as a writer or hasn't been able to get to a broader audience, because she is a, a you know a, a very intelligent writer capable of creating you know really good characters uh, and she's worked inside and outside of Doctor Who and and one hopes that in, in years to come um, she might become possibly one of the the better uh, SF slash fantasy writers in Australia but um, no I only made it to St Anthony's Fire and then sporadically over the over the 90s I, I bought books here and there um, but uh, in the in the end, I was sort of hunting the books down so I could sell them on eBay to turn a pretty penny. So uh, yeah. I do remember I do remember a, uh, an embarrassing day at a secondhand bookshop where I was standing next to a bookcase that had a Lance Parkin book. I think it was called Fusion, oh. and there were two two six year old or six or seven year old brothers sitting uh, at the foot of the shelf looking at the Doctor Who books, and I sort of basically had to muscle my way in to pull it off the shelf before they got their hands on it and handed it to their father. So. And say, boys, this is paying off my mortgage. It was, actually. And what did you think? I mean, how far did you get with them? I remember reading up to, uh, was it Tragedy Day by Gareth Roberts? And yeah. I can remember a couple of others after that, like Blood Tide. Then I, I stopped. They were well written. I mean, especially the earlier ones. Nightshade by Mark Gaddis um, is one that comes to mind. I thought that was a great uh, a great read. Um, I just remember reading The Pit, which I found was a chore. Um, I can remember reading Cat's Cradle by Mark Platt and really just quite bored reading that. I don't know. I know the I know the remit was supposed to be too broad and too deep, but to me, I just didn't get a lot out of them. Um, yes, some of the ideas were, were very, very good. I just didn't get the payoff. And um, like you, and because the rangers kept going and going, you sort of, I was just lost, uh, lost track. 
in terms of how of the output and just lost momentum and in the end I gave up and it was only until say for example um, like Human Nature I didn't read until it was announced they were redoing it for the TV so I actually got, went to the local library and borrowed it so I just stopped there's, I think there's no doubt that the, the very best books were very good science fiction I mean you read books like Warlock or Transit um, and, and they are very good examples of that. I mean, they've got themes and they've got you know, uh, you know they're, they're very topical and that sort of thing but whether they were actually good Doctor Who uh, is another question. And I don't want to sound like that the two have to be mutually exclusive because you can have you know, good science fiction, you can have good Doctor Who, but sometimes you, you wondered, say, with books like Transit, whether you were reading someone's um, uh, you know, a political pamphlet against this, that, and the other. Yeah. Or with, I think, was it Warlock? Did Andrew Cartmell write Warlock? Is that right? Yeah, I think he did, and yeah. That, and that was very heavy against animal uh, experimentation. Um, and you know, and that's fair enough. I mean, you, you had that; they had that remit and all that sort of thing. But uh, again, there was a hardcore of writers, of readers who who love that sort of thing, and, and fair enough, good on them. But there's, you know, there's the fans of the show who just purely watch Doctor Who for escapism, and they weren't necessarily getting that with um, uh, with 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 the books. But um, I think in the end, the the sheer frequency of them tended to just drown you. If you if you if you didn't read a book. If you if you skipped a book, if you bought a book and didn't read it that month, you suddenly found yourself one or two behind. And with 300, 300 page books, you know, if you've got a busy busy life and a busy work life and a busy social life, you, you can fall behind. And suddenly you've got not one or two books behind, but ten or ten or eleven. And you know, where do you go from there? And then they brought out their Missing Adventures range, I think, in ninety four, and um, Cornell kicked that range off as well. And again, I, I did. I was actually more of a, more of a reader of those. Because it was sort of the Doctor Who I I liked and and remembered, and I was quite an avid reader of those actually. But again, the frequency I just lost track, and I just sort of dipped in and out of the range when I when I saw a, a title that looked interesting. The whole the whole phenomenon of fans um, writing for the show. I mean, obviously, part of the enjoyment from watching Doctor Who is in the absence of decent special effects, is the, is the, is the story, the escapism, the adventure, mm. and the acting, and, the, and sometimes the characterization. And it's, it's, it's interesting that all these sort of genre shows, I mean, it's not alien to Doctor, it's not alien to Doctor Who. I mean, you, you watch, you look at the, the mass amounts of uh, tie-in fiction that's been released for, say, Star Trek or Star Wars. And uh, in actual fact, alone amongst all these franchises... Virgin Books had an open submission policy. I remember getting the guidelines myself in the early 90s mailed out to me. And they were quite happy to have a massive slush pile of manuscripts come through. And as the name suggests, a slush pile is 95, 98% full of rubbish. Mm. But they were able to pick the eyes out of the you know some of the best fan writers there. And a lot of those fan writers have turned... And there's nothing wrong with tie-in fiction. I mean, it is... I mean, a lot of people... Uh, not a lot of people, but some people in the, sort of the genre field turn their nose up at, at tie-in fiction and think it's not real work. But I mean, uh, I think if you read, listen to enough interviews or read enough interviews, it is, it's, it's simply because you're playing in someone else's sandpit, you still have to sit down and write the, write the damn thing. Um, and you still have to you know, bring, out, bring a quality product. And a lot of fan writers at that time who, who, were, who were taken on board by Virgin you know, later moved on to, uh, to BBC Books and, and a lot of them have moved into... Television. You know, Television. I mean, Paul Colnell, uh, Gaddis, obviously, Lance Parkin. Uh, they've they've all moved. Uh, Gary Russell. I mean, he was a script script editor on uh, on Doctor Who uh, in the last few years, and Sarah Jane Smith. I mean, they basically uh, in fanzines and in in the in the in the book ranges, 
they cut their teeth and uh, and it's these in, in many ways the wilderness years enabled um, a whole generation of fans to become professionals within the TV industry and of course Russell T Davies wrote wrote a, a virgin book yeah. damaged goods uh, but I mean obviously that was a sort of a little a diversion for him in an otherwise uh, burgeoning TV career it's it's no coincidence that these people some of them anyway uh, c- came later to write for Doctor Who because they were able to break into the TV industry on the strength of their experience and knowledge writing the books I must admit the uh, the virgin books I did enjoy was their uh, non-fiction range they, um, they they started out I think in 92 or 93 the uh, 60s book by uh, David House, Stammerson, Walker. I was in love with those 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 three yeah. books, the '67s and '80s. As you said earlier, it, the fact that the show wasn't on enabled a critical reappraisal to begin of the entire era of the show. Whereas, I mean, when the show was on, people would be just concentrating on what what had just gone out, mm. and there was very little chance to um, to examine the show's history in in any particular depth, especially amongst the in air quotes the fan press. So yeah, they were you know glossy uh, books, well written, well researched as well. I mean, exactly. Uh, yeah, the, the some of the research that came out of those books was groundbreaking, to be honest, because a lot of those fan myths were were busted uh, in those books, especially around the origins of the series. Well, I mean, you saw some of that. Uh, the um, DWM broke new ground in covering the origins of the series. Uh, I remember a, a few issues devoted to. Um, an examination of all the early documents as into the founding of the show. You know what what happened, uh, you know, to inspire the creation and the people who's who were basically you know are now lost to the mists of time mm. who were involved in, in the production. And that was, I mean, in the absence of the show, you could understand that say something like DWM would want to fill its pages and, and look back. But uh, those uh, that, that sort of research that was done, I mean. People like Richard Bignall and, and Richard Molesworth were going off to, you know, the, where, where all the production uh, documents were being held and doing some really hardcore and decent research, which did a lot to illuminate uh, well, certainly my appreciation of where the show had come from. Because for, for all the books like The Key to Time, hardcover by uh, Peter Hanning in the early 80s, which was basically a, a very shallow examination of a, of a broad topic, these things, you know, dug into the minutiae of the show and, you know, the production notes from, you know, uh, the fifth of July, nineteen sixty-three. You know, were thrown up and and were allowed to be examined. So it was it was, it was a fantastic time to be a fan. I mean, f- fanzines like the Frame, fanzines like uh, I think Scaro, uh, even DWB allowed a voice for fans. And I don't think with without the sh- with the show being on, it, it sort of constricted the ability of the fans to do that. The uh, Doctor's Handbook range. I remember that the first Doctor one that details the production of of Doctor Who in the Hartnell years from the beginning right to the end with key with key dates uh, it's just amazing just the amount of research and, and just, just memos the amazing thing about the, they, they kept all the paperwork but burnt the episodes <laughs> it, 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 well only only a, tr- only a true bureaucrat would be able to do that, that, those two things at the same time I mean, I don't. Th- I think it's no exaggeration to say that um, the uh, the docudrama and adventure in Basin Time wouldn't have exist- existed without that research. Hmm. Without that research for you know, Mark Gattis to fall back on, you w- you wouldn't have got something like that. To sort of bone up for this topic, I read the uh, Invision, uh, the Wilderness Years um, uh, publication they did. I think in the early 2000s. They did have an interview with uh, Kevin Davis, the man who directed uh, 30 Years in the TARDIS. And he was actually... He proposed to do a docudrama 
about the origins of the show as well, with uh, Pete Postlewaite playing Arnold. That would have been interesting. Postlewaite was a um, was a very decent actor. He was a great actor. What was that film he did with Daniel Day Lewis? Uh, name of the, the Father. About the, uh, name of the yeah, Father. Yeah, that's fantastic Father. film. Yeah, he might have brought a Eccleston level of intensity to the role, perhaps. <laughs> Certainly on the writing side uh, amongst fandom, there was a real... I mean, in the 80s, there were a lot of fanzines, even in the, in the late 70s. Um, but I think during the during the 90s, with increased desktop publishing, access to desktop publishing, there was an increase in the number. I remember buying a heap, importing a heap of fanzines from the UK, and they came in all you know shapes and sizes and, and varieties, uh, and varying qualities, of course. But I mean, some of the, my favorites were, were The Frame, uh, Scaro, which I mentioned before. Yeah, Scaro magazine was great. I've actually got all those. The nineties run. Oh, I think I got most of them. Yeah, there's some really good articles in there. Uh, Colin L actually did a uh, a great article on a, like a what if. Yes. Colin Baker and season twenty three. I've often thought that it'd be lovely if all these zines could be um, digitized and, and and up uploaded to the net. They become a massive resource for fandom. Um, Given fandom's fractious nature, I doubt very much whether anyone would be able to <laughs> co- coordinate that. But it is... Uh, I sometimes feel... Well, I do feel sorry for them anyway, but I feel sorry for the younger fans today who have no real... Probably that's too broad a generalisation, but perhaps there's a lack of awareness of the show's history and especially the, the involvement of fans in the show. I mean, today, it seems to me that a lot of the younger fans get their fill from, A, watching it, uh, when it's broadcast, watching the DVDs, buying the merchandise, and you know the merchandise is great and all and all that sort of thing. If you like little uh, little toys to sit on your desk and all that all that sort of thing, but um, there's a lot to be said for you know involving yourself in the process. I mean, both you and I, uh, you know, when we discussed, um, uh, I think it was our last podcast when we were talking about fans or the previous one, uh, we were both involved. Me more so in the fiction writing fiction side, and you in um, in, in in organizing and in, and also writing for a, a fanzine regularly. Mm. And I, I found that that was fantastic. I mean, uh, if I'd never gotten involved in writing fiction on, for Doctor Who, I mean, I would not be sort of writing the sort of stuff that I'm, I'm writing now. And I mean, I remember, I think it was in 1992, getting a story published in DWM under the Brief Encounters banner. It was 92 or 94. It's issue 214, people. Run to your collections now. And I that was that was, that was was just wonderful. I remember getting my, uh, my, my contributor's copy mailed to me and it was... It, it, granted, it took eight years to get payment out of them, but um, I'd like to thank uh, Cl- uh, Clayton Hickman for arranging that. Thank you, Clayton. Well, they were going through tough times at that stage. I think they were in the middle of being sold to that to, to Pano. Benini, admittedly, it was incumbent on me to actually count the words in the story and then advise them so that they could do the multiplication and then send me the money. But uh, I, I, I eventually got payment, and that paid for that week's groceries. But um, it was that, that sort of thing to be able to be involved in the multiplicity of fanzines, it was a really good time to be... Um, involved in the writing side anyway but i mean mm. it's not only the writing side that uh that, that burgeoned uh burgeoned burgeoned in that uh, that period there was also the audio and visual side yes there was um in 1992 we had a shot in the arm when the term the sidemen was uh, recovered from uh hong kong it's just amazing to get that back because that was the holy grail of lost episodes and 
it was just announced uh, in DWB. I always remember the cover with the silver uh, Cyberman head on the cover saying, you know, tomb found. And then we were able in a couple of months later to, to actually buy that. Well, can you remember that time when Team was recovered? I can remember reading about it. I think there was a stop press in DWM and then laterally picking up. Was it uh, DWB 99? Yeah, I think it was. It was 99, yeah. Yeah, they managed to spread the coverage over a couple of issues like any good publication would. Um, you know, that was, I mean, again, and that was in the absence of, you know, a regular show, that was a real shot in the arm for my interest in the show because my interest in the show had sort of faded in the late 80s. And when the show went off the air, it didn't sort of really mean anything to me. But then once I moved on to university or partway through university, I, I started picking up DWM again. I think it might have been issue 180 or 181 when they sort of ramped up the coverage in the archive. They, they, they broadened and deepened the coverage in the archive. And I sort of picked it up because DWM had gone through a bit of a revamp. And... Um, and my interest was, was sparked again, and I remember purchasing a second-hand copy of the VHS at a collector's fair, not actually owning a VHS machine, <laughs> a video machine, but, you know, I, I watched it on a friend's, a friend's VCR, and it was, uh, I mean, I, I think I've said this before, I hadn't watched much in the way of uh, Trout, and I think I'd seen the mind robber when it was repeated in the mid-'80s. And, uh, yeah, no, it was a real, it helped spark along my renewed interest in the show. Uh, so it was a great, it was it was a really fun time to be in fandom in those sort of six or seven years between you know the cancellation and when the TV movie came along. I remember getting importing copies of that from the UK, and uh, the day they arrived, I had to meet some friends and do like a drop off in a McDonald's car park. It looked like a you know a fairly suspect uh, rendezvous. I remember getting the tape and taking it home and actually sitting down watching it with my brother who wasn't really a fan but um yeah it was as i said it gave a shot in the arm and i remember we had a doctor who club meeting i think a couple of weeks afterwards and the place was packed with people watching it because it hadn't been released locally i think at that time so uh, yeah it was a timely boost it was to the show's profile but not only that i mean as we've mentioned before the vhs's were coming out and there was mm-hmm. jnt was overseeing the years tapes oh yeah. Had you seen many of them? I, again, I'd picked up a copy, a couple of second-hand copies from somewhere. I think there was the Dalek years and another one. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, it was certainly interesting to see uh, these very early episodes because I, unlike, you know, a number of my friends in the club, I wasn't one to go and buy every VHS tape that came out. Um I don't know why it wasn't. I suppose it was probably just too expensive. I had other things to spend my money on. And, you know, there was always the opportunity to watch a repeat on the ABC when they eventually came around. But, um, no, I, I understand the, uh, the uh, dislike for them. I mean, J and T was just clinging to the show at that stage. It's, it's really quite sad, as we've mentioned before. Yeah, and I remember DWB reviewing the titles and they were, I mean, obviously they had their own agenda against him, but so they were very, you know, vitriolic. And in fact, when I was reading that to Envision today, the Colin Baker years tape, the sales were so low, it actually threatened the, um, the whole video, Doctor Who video line altogether. They were actually going to stop everything. Colin Baker can't take a break. No, it's not his fault. Uh, that's actually one of the better ones in that range, actually, I thought. Because it wasn't um, just relying on very bad linking material. You know, actually had the man giving some inner anecdotes. But um, yeah, look, the VHSs, they were releasing, I think, two a month. That sounds about right. Took about 20 years to get through all those. And at the end of the range, because they released all the good stuff earlier on, they were sort of left with the um, 
How can I Dregs? say? Yeah, I was going to say Invasion of Dinosaurs was one of the last ones. That's not a drag, but I remember Megloss was in there. Um, the Mutants. Yeah, some of the lesser lesser like titles were sort of rounding off the range at the end. And not only was um, the BBC releasing uh, audio and visual stuff, because let's not forget that the BBC was also doing stuff like Curse of Fatal Death. Mm. Uh, that's a terrible title. Um, Resistance is useless. useless. Uh, and of course, more than thirty years for the thirtieth anniversary. But mm. the, the fans uh, were in in a, in a way like the fiction; they were taking ownership of the series in one form or another. So you had, uh, I think, that the most prominent uh, example of this is uh, BBV Productions. I suppose Productions is the right way to describe them. Um, who uh, I think Bill Baggs, using his experience and the people that he worked with uh, in the uh, audio visuals in the late eighties and early nineties branched off not only into more um, audios, uh, starting off, I think, with rather cheekily the Professor and, and Ace audios until I think the BBC told them to stop, stop using doing it. Yeah, stop doing it for a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons. Um, mm. But also they got into video production. Yes, they did. Uh, Summoned by Shadows, I think, was their first one. I, I, I mean, they weren't great. Let's, let's face facts. I mean, on minimal budget and, 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 you know, people who weren't well-versed in the craft. But, you know... Again, it was uh, an outlet for the fans. I mean, it's probably better than them standing on street corners. And... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it would have been better. I purchased some of them. Um, I, I, I certainly enjoyed them for what they were. I mean, a lot of them were a bit... Well, some of the early ones especially were a bit experimental. Um, and then I was, to my great delight, there was uh, the Airzone Solution, which was available here in Australia from a local... Um, a local release, uh, release. Uh, that was good, actually. I mean, well, the fans were being exploited into buying it because you know it had all the, the actors who played the doctors in you know obviously different roles, plus the just decidedly disturbing scene where Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant get it on. Let's get it on. That was that was wrong, just all over. Yes, the time. Um, yes. Uh, years of therapy still have able to get that image out of my head. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, there was a lot of that. I mean, I I, I purchased the BBV uh, the audios, um, those early ones. Which the first two were, well, sorry, they did um, uh, a couple of continuations of the uh, the audio visuals uh, with Nick Briggs's. Um, well, he wasn't the Doctor. He was the Wanderer, I think. Oh, God. Uh, with amnesia. They were, I, I, I liked them. I didn't mind them at all. I mean, it was it was sort of Doctor Who more so than the, the BBV stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed them. And, and, again, it was a proving ground, a testing ground for fans who, who kicked on. I mean, Big Finish wouldn't exist without that experience. Um, and our pockets would probably be, our wallets would be much more thicker if, if Big Finish had never come along. Were you buying them because you were just really desperate to get new Doctor Who or just that the whole range actually interested you? I think the whole range interested me. I don't think I was ever so desperate that I needed, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a faux Doctor Who in my life to get me through the day. Hmm. I thought that these offered something approximating the experience of listening or watching Doctor Who, but also, I mean, they were. I think they had value in and of themselves. Hmm. Um, and I mean, I had to, you know watched watched read the books and all that sort of thing, and, and got the magazine during during the years, and, and read the fans. And so it was just a sort of another thing to to purchase, I suppose. Did you ever get into them in any great way, shape, or form? No, I remember watching some the some by Shadows and More the Messiah. I remember watching those. I remember watching Auton. 
I really enjoyed Auton. And I definitely remember watching Air Zone Solution because I had a copy of that and I really enjoyed that. And Alan Cumming was in that as well. He, he didn't get it on with Nicola Bryant, did no, he? No, no, but uh, oh, he later appeared in Goldeneye, so he went from uh, success to success. But um, <laughs> no, I never bothered with... I remember watching Downtime and... Did you watch Shakedown? I did. I enjoyed Shakedown. I thought that was actually very well done. Yeah, I remember purchasing the... the getting the video imported as well. Um, mm. And... Uh, I mean, it was just an interesting time at that stage. That again, there was no show on the, no no show on the telly, and fans just had this outlet. And I mean, it, you know, the nineties weren't exclusive for fans making fan productions. There were um, there was stuff being made in in the eighties as well. But I mean, again, with you know the, the increased power of computers and uh, the ability to do, to do you know you know halfway decent special effects. Um, I mean, they got Christopher Barry on, on board to direct Downtime, for goodness sake. So, I mean, um, obviously Ian Levine and his investors were able to shake a wad of money in front of him. But, I mean, they got, you know, they got a, a man who had uh, 30, 30 years of a television directing and producing experience to, to do something like that. Now, Downtime is not particularly good, um, but, you know, to, to get that production up and have it out there and uh, it just adds a little, it's a, it's a, it's a, a thread in, in the, the fan tapestry, I suppose. Now, we haven't discussed the elephant in the room, Rob. So we've mentioned, you know, in the 30th anniversary year, we were supposed to be getting the Dark Dimension. That didn't happen. We got more than 30 years in the TARDIS. For the anniversary, there was a 14-minute little mini-special called Dimensions in Time. Or Dementia in Time, as I call it. Well, what can you say that doesn't involve the breaking of furniture and <laughs> copious swearing? I mean, I remember... At that time, I was working in a news agency and I had access to a lot of the imported newspapers from the UK, or the Australian versions, at least the sort of compendium versions. And the through that whole, you know, the first five or six years uh, after, you know, Survival went out, there was a whole lot of news, you know, tidbits and snippets of stuff about, uh, you know, the movie, the potential movie coming out and all that sort of thing, uh, which never amounted to anything but baseless speculation in some of the more raggy... Uh, tabloids uh, from the UK, you know, Donald Sutherland, uh, John Cleese, you know, Dudley Moore, um, Eric you know, Idle as well, Eric Idle, Carolyn Munro. I mean, all these, you know, these people who you'd sort of, you know, the usual suspects were thrown up by tabloid press who couldn't give a toss. And David Hasselhoff, don't forget him. <sighs> How can you forget the Hoff? The Hoff. The Hoff. Big in Germany. He is actually. He's a mega recording star in Germany. Like Volkswagens and uh, and uh, goose stepping through Poland. He's big in Germany. <laughs> but yeah, the dimensions in time. Uh, well, what can you say? I mean, I mean, all what? What can you say? J and T. I'm speechless. Really, it's awful. <laughs> it's just awful. And I, you know, I remember again. I remember reading about dimensions. Uh, sorry, a dark dimension. You know, the, the news that it was coming out and getting all excited about that. Oh yes. And then it was it was featured. It was mentioned in DWM. And then the very following DWM, I bought it from uh, where I used to work at Minotaur, which is like a forbidden style planet bookstore in Melbourne. And going to my car and sitting in the car and then opening it up and reading, a dark dimension is no longer being made. And there was a, a, an article, a, a piece written by Gary Russell, which was possibly the most passive-aggressive, aggressive piece of writing I'd ever read in Doctor Who magazine, where he basically took a knife, took a shiv to the BBC for once again letting fans down who'd supported the show through thick and thin. And, you know, you'd raise their hopes with Dark Dimension and you'd dash them yet again. And, um, and instead, what did we get? Dimensions in Time, D-I-T, which spells almost zit. I mean, it was, it's just awful. And 
you you think what were you thinking John Nathan Turner other than you know earning some money to feed the cat now I know its intentions were in the right place it was for children in need yeah but if children are in need why would you inflict this on them this is like this is like a, a food drop where the food <laughs> falls onto people's heads and kills them instead of feeding them. I mean, come on! I'm not defending it, but what Dimensions in Time—it sounds act- like you're defending it, Mark. What Dimensions in Time did was reaffirm to the general public that it's a cheap and nasty show, and the, the lid's on the coffin, and it's just hammering the nails in, and it's going off to get cremated. It is. Uh, I'm not defending it. I can't defend it. It's just awful. I know. I know it has good intentions, and it was great to get. I mean, the only thing it did do was get five doctors there. Uh, you know, Pert, we threw it at Sylvester McCoy, but you know, 14 minutes is um, it's too long to wait. On YouTube, though, somebody's done a um, a version of it with production notes, and it's hilarious. That's that's the only redeeming feature about it. I remember watching it, and I just sat there just dumbfounded. There's a um. There was a show uh, in Australia for about 30 years called Hey Hey It's Saturday. And it was, a, it was an old-style variety show. And uh, during the latter years, it had a, a in, in air quotes, talent show called Red Faces, where <laughs> local members of the community would come on and do their, you know, spoon, uh, spoon clacking thing. And, they'd, you know, they'd get a couple of eucalyptus leaves and a comb and, you know, make noises. Or they'd do some improvisational comedy and all that sort of thing. I loved Hey Had Sunday. I'd watch it up to the point where Red Faces come on and then Red Faces come on and I'd run out of the house because I cannot stand that sort of, you know, that, 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 that level of embarrassment. Dimensions in Time, it evokes the same feeling <laughs> in me, especially when John Pertwee knocks on that door to, is it Noel Edmonds, thingy-majig? And he's just, he's just, he's leaning up against the door door jam there and he's just, you know, he's, you know, he's laconic and whatever and he's clearly playing... The third doctor, it just sends me shrieking out of the house. It really is. It's it's just a black hole in fandom, and I can. I mean, you know, because it was screened with the children need thing, it got an audience of fourteen million, and that was thirteen point nine 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 very bemused audience members. I think the BBC actually received some complaints because they were expecting it to be the dark dimension, and they got that instead. So I'd be I'd be really annoyed as well. But um, look, <sighs> fandom overcome it. I mean, it's become a byword for, you know, the, 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 just badness generally. And, and, you know, it was another stick to beat John Nathan Turner with. Um, who there, There's no depths of, you know, pity that I feel for him that can be plumbed. But uh, that was, you know, it's like wrestling an alligator. It seems like a good idea at the time. But when you're, in, <laughs> when you're shoulder deep in that lake and that alligator's got a hold on you, you just want to let go. You, what am I doing with this thing? And it was it was the same sort of thing, I think. It just carried on the fine tradition of stories uh, with the word time in the titles. Time, monster, time in the rani. Time flight. Time of the doctor. central point in the so-called wilderness years was the tv movie and while the talk had been about you know the movie movie um in the background um seagal uh not steven seagal we should no, point out philip seagal yeah philip seagal not steven yeah philip seagal uh 
a more slimmer individual, I think, um, had been had been pursuing a personal crusade to actually bring Doctor Who back to t- uh, to um, TV. And in actual fact, apparently, uh, well, apparently, his intervention in 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 part helped scupper uh, the Dark Dimension or lost in the Dark Dimension. As it was so called. why did he scupper dimensions in time then? Well, that, that's the that's a valid question. That's a valid question. Whilst fandom had sort of basically appropriated the show in in, in a large respect. There were efforts uh, all along to, even though the BBC basically let it die on the vine, there were efforts to bring the, the show back, as we mentioned earlier. And, you know, there was, you know, production houses were sort of constantly offering and uh, and the BBC was knocking it back. And uh, I think it was more to do with, you know, the business cases and the BBC wanting to retain as much of the proceeds as they could, um, you know, but not putting as any, any money in themselves. But Seagal, you know, I mean, I think the lure of having someone associated with Steven Spielberg caught the attention of the BBC. In the end, Spielberg and Amblin sort of moved off, but uh, Seagal uh, kept running with it. And we had the sort of, um, I suppose it was a bit of a, uh, I suppose it came as a bit of a shock that, um, that you know, Doctor Who was coming back sort of in, in an Anglo-American production. Uh, what what are your sort of memories of, of that time? When that, when it was announced it was coming back, and when it was announced Paul McGann was doing it, I thought, oh wow, what a great actor! Because obviously I'd seen with Nail and I, and uh, it was one of my uh, sort of fave films. So I was absolutely, uh, as Jane T used to say, surprised and delighted he was cast. So I was actually genuinely excited about it. I'll be honest with you, I was a bit concerned about the whole Anglo. Uh, American co-production thing only because I just knew they'd have to please many people and there's a great documentary on the telemovie DVD where it talks about all these different partners they had to satisfy so it was amazing it was made my main abiding member of the TV movie was actually watching it with sunglasses on not because I was impersonating Eric Roberts was that my glasses actually broke the day before and I was waiting for them to be fixed. So I remember going to pick up this tape because there was a local video importer who had um, obviously imported it in and uh, got the phone calls in and the queue at the store was about was 100 fans in front of me. Got it, went home, watched it with a friend. At the end of it, just sort of looked at him with my Eric Roberts sunglasses on and said, I'm not too sure about that. You didn't say you were dressed for the occasion. No, I didn't say that at all. Um... It, I suppose at the time for me it was it was too far away from the classic series that I would have liked. But now when I look back at it and I watch it again in the context of a new series, I actually think it works a lot better now than what it did back then. I think just the way of the storytelling and the production and just the flow of it. I, look, it does cram too much in. There's the, the whole regeneration Daleks all in the first five to ten minutes. It's too much. Um, and if anything, what the TV movie does was just to show Russell T. Davis how to do it properly. There's some good dialogue and there's some good set pieces in there. Um, it just doesn't hang together overly well. I think that comes out of its, its not troubled production, but the fact that the script went through endless derivations mm. and drafts and there were several masters... Uh, no, no pun intended, several masters to serve. There was the BBC, there was... Universal, and yeah. Seagal, Jacobs, the director. I mean, what J- Jacobs was able to pull together in terms of, say, the characterisation of the Eighth Doctor and, you know, the, you know Grace uh, Holloway and um, and that aspect of it. I mean, the story's no great shakes, personally. Mm. Um, but in terms of 
the there's certain set pieces as you mentioned the production design was was magnificent the direction was fantastic too jeffrey Sachs did an amazing job i mean exactly exactly now looking at it i mean as you say it was probably looking at it in 96 compared to 89 i mean there's no there's no comparison i mean the production values were were light years ahead of what we were getting in the late mm. 80s but i mean if you were if you sort of thought well given that the tv movie has a real x-files millennium feel in terms of again it, it, the way it's shot and the, and the sort of story it's telling, um, and given that Doctor Who tends to reflect the era in which it's in, in terms of TV and all that sort of thing, you could see a line. Say the show had never gone out of production in eighty nine, eighty nine, ninety to ninety ninety six. Um, it, you could have you could see it actually reaching that point mm. of, of of evolving into that sort of production feel. And who knows? I mean, it might have, if it had stayed on the air. It might have become a series of TV movies through the year, mm. or it might have taken on that sort of event, sort of uh, you know, you know, three or four during the year, and then sort of mo- moved on from there and evolved again, perhaps into more uh, the more serial form. But uh, certainly, in terms of its its its, its look uh, and its feel and the writing and the acting, it's very reflective of, of mid nineties television, especially mid nineties American um, television, American TV. Because I think there was there was a bit of a cringe within the BBC about uh, the ability, its ability to portray, I suppose, genre television. Because there was, I mean, there was Red Dwarf, uh, and there were there were a couple of other things um, that, that were there, but they they were very reflective of, say, American TV, and not of the sort of the unique characteristics that uh, the British tele-fantasy could bring bring to the table mm. um, and I suppose it's only now in, 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 with the sh- series return that it's sort of ref- reflecting a more British sensibility in a sense even though it's very popular uh, it, well in America speaking comparatively speaking in America but that might be just an affectation for, for all things British mm. but um, I, I remember at the time that the TV movie was announced um that uh, I think there were a lot of people who were excited. Certainly, I was working again in, in, in Minotaur in Melbourne, and I was able to, uh, you know, we were getting all the British mag- magazines in. We had TV Zone, uh, I think it was Dreamwatch by that stage, Doctor Who magazine, and they were absolutely full of it. And I was uh, full of the, the TV movie for that brief period, a uh, couple of months on either side. And you know, I remember getting the, the Doctor Who magazine uh, that, that specifically covered the the. the uh, there's a special issue, I think, of DWM where they covered the TV. They movie. did, yeah, they did. And yeah. I remember getting very excited that afternoon when, it, when we broke open the boxes from the UK, and um, and of course, um, with as as is ever my luck, when I finally got my hands on the the VHS, uh, my we were actually going away. We're going out of Melbourne for that for a few days, so I never actually got to see it on the day that it, I got it into my hands. I had to. We went away, and then we came back, and it was sort of the next week. That I got to see it well after everyone else had had a chance to look at it, and I think my my attitude to it was the same as yours. That um, given what we'd had beforehand with say the uh, the Virgin books and the the ability their ability to ex- you know go deeper into characterization and and themes and story, what you get with the TV movie is a fairly simple um, uh, quest or chase chase story. Um, with a bit of you know the, the old series bolted to the front with Sylvester McCoy coming along, so I was even though I enjoyed it enough, it was a sort of I was left sort of feeling hollow at the end, and and I, I do know that there was a real hollow feeling afterwards because it was never picked up in America, hmm. and even though it rated its pants off in the UK, it was in the top ten for that day or that week actually. Um, the BBC without you know American money wasn't going to go ahead with it, so um, in a sense. 
uh, McGann was 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 th- you know thrown on the uh, aside or on the scrap heap, and 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 the the show, for want of a better word, limped on. Would you have liked to have seen it go to a series? I mean, if you read uh, some of the plans they had for it, some of it uh, was going to be rehashing or sort of remaking some of the classic series. It might have been that as time went by, if it had been, you know garnered enough, garnered enough of a following in the UK, at the US, sorry, that it would have just drifted further and further away from what Doctor Who, as we understand it, was. Um, it would have, you know, based in, I suppose, in Canada, like a lot of genre shows were at that time, it would have lost its its British feel. But it might have, it might have gained an even more cosmopolitan feel. You know, the ability to sort of, you know, the America being a big place, Canada being a big place, you'd have different locations, different, you know, a different feel to it. And you would have had more North American involvement into it and sort of more American tropes and that sort of thing. So, um, but I perhaps it would have drifted away... Um, from what we understand Doctor Who to be. And certainly, um, I suppose if it had been a success for... It wouldn't have been a success for anything longer than, say, six or seven years and then would have probably been cancelled, much like Star Trek Next Generation or The X-Files or Babylon 5. or think, These things, things seem to have a shelf life in, in, in North America that they sort of don't necessarily have, say, in, in, in Britain. But, I mean, I think the the... The reaction to the nod of the Doctor last year, which is you know six minutes, almost seven minutes of, of Paul McGann returning into the role, shows that for the at least for the role, his creation of the role of the Eighth Doctor, there is a lot of fan love out there for him, and the TV movie moved the series forward in a sense. It enabled the um, the books to regenerate as such. I mean, BBC uh, the BBC took back the rights from Virgin and used McGann as the new Doctor. And that enabled, you know, it gave it a new spur, I suppose. And you had new writers come in on board, like Lawrence Miles, um, who used that fresh blood, as it were, to, to, to as a springboard for, you know, even broader and even deeper stories. Alien Bodies was a, a fantastic book. Oh, I love that. Uh, again, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an outro sort of uh, science fiction idea, mm. you know, that the Doctor's body is stolen and used for... I mean, it, it, it's also quintessentially Doctor Who. It's a bit, you know, the Doctor's body is stolen and is used is going to be auctioned off because of, you know, his, his DNA and what that allows people to do. But it also is a fairly decent science fiction story underneath it as well. Um, and I, I know a lot of people suggest that uh, BBC books played it a bit safer than the Virgin line, but I would tend to disagree because there's a lot of there's a number of novels in there, so, you know, Lance Park and some, the Seeing Eye by you know John Bloom, and, and I think it was Kate Orman yeah. as well. There's there's a level of story writing there that I think is comparable to. Um, the, the the Virgin book range. Did you uh, read a lot of the BBC books more than the Virgin range? Uh, again, I, I I sort of I think I bought uh, a number of the first ones, and then sort of cherry picked um, the ones that came later. Um, not for any particular reasons that I was sort of put off by the writing or anything like that, but um, I just had other things you know that I needed I wanted to read or spend my money on. So mm. again, I mean you 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 were. You were under a cascade of books that were coming out in a relentless schedule, um, and it's just difficult to keep up. And if it's diffi- if you you know if you get into a habit, you stick with the habit. If you fall out of the habit, then you well, what's the point of picking it up? You know, so especially when they're releasing two books a month, they had their classic range or the missing stories range and the Eighth Doctor Adventures. Uh, yeah, I think they actually sort of slowed it down towards the end of that range. But so I. I remember reading quite a few of the early Eighth Doctor ones and enjoying them, 
And same with past Doctor ones as well. But like you, just couldn't keep up with the frequency and just sort of drifted away from it and uh, cherry-picked a couple. And But nah, towards the end, never bothered, really. So Big finished quite a license from the BBC to do original Doctor Who dramas and kicked it off with the uh, Sirens of Time. I was quite excited about that actually. I remember listening to that and uh, it was quite alright. I didn't mind it. But certainly to, to get any sort of new Doctor Who, especially after the uh, disappointment of the TV movie. Um, no, I, I remember I did uh, an email interview with Gary Russell about the audio visuals at around that time before the announcement was made and... Um, which, for people who are interested to have a read of that, if you go to justice.org, justice being J-U-S-T-Y-C-E.org, um, you can uh, you can see that interview. I remember interviewing him and talking about that, and he actually mentioned that they'd uh, got the license or were getting the license or made some allusion to it, and I completely missed it uh, before the actual announcement. But um, <laughs> I remember getting uh, the signs of Tom, and I was... I, I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, you know, I suppose it, it's natural to start the... Uh, the range off with a bang but um again this was an outgrowth of uh so the bbv uh, audio stuff and earlier than that the audio visual stuff and in insofar as um a professional slash fan production goes and how you relate that to your own personal canon about the show i mean i regard big finish as a as a, a continuation of the series in a way given given their limited remit i mean that they you know they're not able to say regenerate any particular doctor uh, as far as I know, or um, or reference the, the the current series, but uh, I, I regard it as a legitimate you know con- continuation of the series, and I s- have stuck with it um, you know on and off since it came back. Uh, what's it now? Fifteen years ago, which is I mean it's it's quite remarkable uh, its longevity and you know its its ability in in the face of uh, you know piracy and torrents and all that sort of thing of its ability to to survive. And again, it breaks some new writers in that range. They they had an open submission policy mm. as well, like the Virgin Books did. And, uh, you know, they, they got writers in like Joe Lidster and... John Dorney. There's a, there's a, there's a whole group of uh, decent writers who are able to provide g- good product. And I mean, you know, it's it's wonderful that they're able to get all, all the living uh, classic series doctors back um, because uh, mm. you know, I've said this... <laughs> I've said this before. It's a bit, you know, macabre, but um, their, uh, their, their their business model is predicated on people living forever, uh, which is clearly not going to happen. But um, while it lasts, uh, it, it, it's it's a wonderful thing. And as you said before, it's given a lot of fans a, their break into 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 you know professional writing and and professional you know sound design and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, and uh, it's just mm. it, it just links back to sort of fan. The ability of fans to sort of move into the space that the show left when it uh, when it was taken off the air. You know, in the early nineties, the BBC released *The Paradise of Death* and *The Ghosts of Endspace*, starring John Pertwee. So, I mean, they were broadcast on radio. Um, *Paradise of Death* is, wasn't was okay, but *Ghosts of Endspace* was awful. But it gave uh, the understanding and the idea that Doctor Who can work well on audio and can be done professionally, and people will listen to it or buy it. So. Um, using that model, uh, they've been able to go from strength to strength. Again, like the Virgin books and the BBC books, I dip in and out of that range now because it's just too much content for me. Well, it's, a, it's ability to it's ability to survive in the face of the show coming back is remarkable because I remember Gary Russell saying a, a number of times that 
they'd hoped that the I think that he said that they'd hoped that the sh- the return of the show would lead to an increase in sales. Instead, sales actually fell off a cliff, um, and it, w- it took a number of years, or one or two years, for the sales to pick up again. Because obviously, when you have Doctor Who back in its natural environment uh, TV, why would you go and get a in air quotes a lesser product? Um, but there's clearly uh, an ability for both ranges, well, for the range, uh, the, the big finish range to exist, even when the TV series is, is as massively, massively popular as it is. Uh, I suppose it's counterintuitive that people wouldn't be interested in, in other Doctor Who, you know, but, you know, I suppose people are time poor and, you know, when am I going to be able to sit down and listen to an audio? But, um, and again, I mean, people like uh, Gary Russell, Nick Briggs uh, have moved uh, from, well, they, they've moved to and from the you know big finish to to, to doctor who and 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 back to big finish um and there's uh there's some they big finish do some really good work but they target their market at dedicated fans because they know they're the ones who are going to buy it so that's why they do sequels and some sequels in my opinion are quite um <laughs> tenuous uh you know, for, for example they're doing a sequel to the invisible enemy or they resurrect Morbius from a scrap of brain matter, or, or some of them do, in my opinion, uh, jump the shark a bit. But they, and I grant you that. But they also have tailored some of their ranges to meet the the format of the new series. So, for instance, you know, it was a great triumph to get uh, Paul McGann back, and they started them off with a series of, you know, as they'd done with the other Doctors, you know, two CD set, uh, two CD set stories. And then they hit upon the idea to sort of mimic how the TV series was going by releasing one CD stories and um, you'd have like a 40 or 45 or 50 minute uh, adventure for the 8th Doctor. And I think they attempted to, uh, as best they could, mirror that, you know, one episode, one episode, one story uh, format. And um, they've slightly moved away from it now because I've, I've been listening to, I think it's series four of the 8th Doctor Adventures. And they've sort of moved to the two-episode format, but um, yeah, they they're, they they do they're not necessarily hidebound to the past, uh, the past way of presenting the show and the past way that they presented it. And they, I think they're willing to try try different things. I mean, they're doing box sets now, um, which you know I suppose makes it easier for them to generate revenue and that sort of thing because people are able to buy a series all in one and um, you know it's easy to market and, and, and that sort of thing that was a good point about the Act Doctor ranges because um, that's the ones I listen to the most and like, like and as you said I really enjoy that 45 minute format and just the whole shake up with Lucy Miller because I was finding towards the end of the, the original sort of McGann run where uh, stories like Memory Memory Lane I think it was were real quite real chore to get through but once they brought Sheridan Smith and Paul McGann together, it just gave it a real spark and a real lift. I enjoyed Dark Eyes. So that was great as well. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, in the box sets, I think uh, probably an attempt to target um, just sort of the you know someone who's willing to wanting to dip into the into the into the range. Because I mean, if you were attempt to start from the beginning, it's just it, there's there's no time in one's life to do that. But if you can buy a box set of say Dark Eyes or Dark Eyes Two or Countermeasures. Um, that enables you to do that, uh, get a whole story in one go, and it's, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a clever move by them. But um, yeah, no, the big big finish, uh, you know, came into being at sort of the not the tail end of the the, the so called wilderness years, but um, they were able to tap into that need that fans had for 
um, uh, more more adventures of Doctor Who. Well, it's sort of talking about Big Finish, BBC uh, Audio started their Missing Stories range as well. They kicked off the range in '93 with uh, the Macra Terror, and I think it was Evil. Yeah, it was Evil, Evil or Daleks. That was it. Yes, um, the links were done by JNT. The sound quality wasn't the best, but I always remember. Uh, the Macra Terror had the had a couple of interesting lines. The entrance to the colony was decidedly futuristic. Was the uh, opening uh, gambit to part one, which sounded like a, something at the Jetsons. But that just goes back to the point that the BBC were perfectly willing to expo- exploit their back catalogue and soak uh, fans for their money, but didn't have the gumption, the idea, uh, the nous to be able to bring back the show in any particular format that would be would be popular. It, I mean, it possibly that the show did need a rest at that stage. I mean, we've discussed before how the McCoy's first year was a disaster, but there was a rapid upswing in quality. And if the show perhaps had come back for season 27 and it had been... Because in, that, in 89, there was very little publicity. There was no Radio Times. So there was, I think, JNT attempted a second half press launch. But, you know, it was with only four stories and uh, 14 weeks, sorry. It was uh, too little too late. But given the right nurturing environment, the show, um, you know, could have could have limped along long enough to be popular once again but uh you know we'll never know we'll never know but uh yeah so uh, stuff like the the missing missing audios that were, were coming out um were well i mean there was no other way to represent the show represent those missing episodes i mean dwm later in the in the decade released the telly snaps uh in dwm and i think in um at a, a series of comics reprints which they uh which, which were able fans to see visual evidence of those uh, those stories for the first time so um again you know the fans were in charge of dwm and they were you know, there's a lot of fan service i suppose in a way going going on there but i mean i i enjoyed uh listening to some of the uh the missing episode tapes I mean, yeah the narration is a bit a bit a bit dodgy and the quality is nowhere near what we have today uh, the sort of the crystal clear audios that came uh, later on from I think it was David Holman and, and a couple of other gentlemen, but um, yeah, it was just sort of that ability of fans to sort of you know soak up the the past of the show. And it, I mean, I suppose at that stage, it, even though fans were looking and yearning for the future for the show to come back, at that point it really only had a past for for, for people to sort of appreciate. <laughs> Big Finish had been in, in being for a number of years and then we'd reached the uh, the 40th anniversary and uh, other than the spectacular... Compared to the spectacular pyrotechnics of Dimensions in Time, um, the, the 40th anniversary was a fairly limp affair. Some uh, A couple of my, our friends have expressed to us that in the lead-up to the TV movie, there was always an expectation the show would come back. And then when the TV movie did eventuate... And Phantom realised that there would be no ongoing series. Uh, Phantom sort of fell into a bit of a black hole or a funk and didn't think that the show would ever come back. And certainly by the 40th anniversary, there was... Well, I mean, there were things going on behind the scenes. But at that time, there was... You know, there was it was very, very low-key. It was just merchandise. It was uh, the coffee table book, The Legend, it was called. I remember there was a Three Doctors sort of box set which had little Bessie on it. So there's plenty of merchandise to milk the fans, but uh, there was nothing on television uh, to celebrate its 40th anniversary. And, and the closest was uh, Scream the Shulker at the 40th anniversary. Was 2003? Was that later? Was that earlier or later? I can't remember. I think it was 2003. I mean, I could reach over to my iPhone and look it up. 
But uh, but certainly, Scream of the Shulker came out, and then it was immediately canned, canned, and then swamped by the announcement that the show had actually was actually coming back. Yeah. To our mutual ast- astonishment, I'm sure. It was actually 2003. It was November 13th, 2003. Scream of the Shulker. Yeah, I looked on my iPhone. <laughs> You're a much quicker typer than I am, but I'll go with... Ninja-like reflexes. <laughs> I think we mentioned it before about uh, where we were when we heard the news, but uh, again, the news came out, it's coming back. Uh, I think it was a mixture of uh, disbelief and uh, amazement. And again, um, the the people who were instrumental in his return were Russell T Davies, a fan, and Lorraine Hegesy, also a fan. And she actually, I think she actually worked as a production assistant in the 80s. She did. She worked on a couple of uh, the McCoy productions. And there was a healthy body of fans... And fan, I don't want to use fans in the pejorative sense. Fans who had made it good as professionals who came in and, and did scripts. I mean, Davies uh, uh, tapped Mark Gaddis on the shoulder. He tapped Paul Colnell on the shoulder. You know, Stephen Moffat, uh, hardcore fan. Um, we, we were all tapped to come and contribute significant stories. I mean, Gaddis's story is a historical, which, you know, was obviously designed to show to the new audience that not only could the TARDIS travel to the future, travel to the past. Paul Cornell was, I think, tapped for his ability to bring a emotional story to the mix. And Stephen mm. Moffat was tapped for his ability to write, a, you know, a, a very, very good script. You know, he had a, a heap of experience in, in, in writing for television and... Uh, with his, you know, love for the show, he it certainly shows in the two-parter in the Eccleston uh, year, and um, it's just it just goes to show that a lot of people. I mean, you know, the wilderness years is a is a is a term that a lot of fans have adopted to 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 describe you know the years between eighty nine and two thousand and thirty five, but when you look at it, I mean, it was a very fertile uh, period uh, for fans, especially in terms of their ability to uh, contribute to the show's history and and uh, you know. And to the show's myth and, 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 and story, unearthing you know documents from 40 years previously or contributing to the show's continuation in the books uh, and the audios and even the fan video productions. It's a very fertile period in the show's history and I think The Wilderness Years is, is very much a misnomer, I'm, for me anyway. I think, I think fans um, have a lot to look back, fans today have a lot to look back on in that, you know, that 15 or 16 year period and and enjoy because I think the the pickings there are as rich in that decade and a half as in any other uh, comparable decade in the show's history. I'm going to paraphrase uh, Doctor in Distress here. Sixteen years was too long to wait. Well, you know, when you reach a certain age, sixteen years is <laughs> is, is a blink of an eye, uh, uh, blink of the eye. And um, yeah, look, living through it, it was living through it. I mean, I I really wanted the show to come back, and especially uh, up until the point when the TV movie. I came back and I was really excited for it. But then when it did come back and nothing eventuated out of it, I was oh, I was fairly disappointed. And then I, I, you get over these things and you move on and, you know, you had other things to occupy yourself with regards to Doctor Who and there were still things to entertain you. But um, the sort of the, the realisation that it sort of sunk into me that the TV movie wasn't the saviour, wasn't the messiah, and fans sort of had to make do with what they had and what they were able to produce. We invited some uh, comments from uh, listeners about uh, this particular topic, the wilderness years, and uh, we got a, a letter here or an email from J.R. Southall from uh, Blue Box Podcast. Uh, J.R. writes, I have to confess to having lost interest in Doctor Who following the cancellation of the series in 1989. Not that I was aware that it had been cancelled, but the lack of an announcement after the closing credits of Survival Part 3 meant the omens, omens didn't look good. 
and although I still bought the magazine for the next year or so, even the Gallifrey Guardian didn't provide much cause for hope. Eventually, I just drifted away, and thus missed the launch of the new adventures by a matter of probably only weeks. I wonder if I'd caught the first one, might my interest in Doctor Who have remained intact, or would the more adult tone of the books have put the final nail in the coffin? To this day, I still prefer Doctor Who that recognises that it's primarily for children. My favourite film director, however, is Stanley Kubrick. Go figure. The TV movie was probably everything that I imagined the books would have been, and more. It was also Americanized. With the benefit of hindsight, the movie itself isn't half bad, especially considering the restrictions the writer and producers had to work with. It still suffers from trying to reimagine Doctor Who for an adult audience, though, and that's its worst crime. It feels more like an episode of something else, and that's got nothing to do with shoehorn continuity or Eric Roberts. In fact, I'd say that Eric Roberts is one of the truest things in it. He's not a million miles away from Stephen Thorne and the demons Tony Beckley in the Seeds of Doom. It was the robots of death that ultimately brought me back. I enjoyed Doctor Who Night in 1999, a reminder of happy times long since past. But when the robots of death was issued on DVD the following year, and having, rec- and having recently purchased a player, I couldn't resist the pull of nostalgia and bought a copy immediately. But it was listening to Philip Hinchcliffe and Chris Boucher on a dry but fascinating commentary track that made me realise what I'd been missing for the last decade. And when I saw the latest copy of Doctor Who magazine in WH Smith's shortly after, I was firmly on the road to rehabilitation. Now, JR makes a very good point, especially about um, fans' ability to move away from the show and back to it. And uh, he's he's mentioned about the DVD range. Uh, I mean, we didn't even touch on that in our discussion. Mm. But uh, I will say one thing about the DVD range uh, and also a defense of the restoration team. I can think of no other TV series, no other genre TV series that is as well treated in terms of DVD uh, releases than, than Doctor Who. I mean, we get uh, the audio and the visual as best as it can be done, given the, uh, the provenance of the material. And not only that, it's through the auspices of the restoration team and other fans and their, their love for the show that we get an enormous amount of extras of value-added material, for, to use the parlance. Bam, bam, thank you, Dan. And it's just another example of fans contributing to the series' legacy. I mean, you know, without... I mean, you know, Ian Levine put his own money into doing the rest, uh, the recreation of uh, Planet of Giants Part 3. Now, you can quibble about um, the quality of that, and largely it was awful. But, you know, it just speaks to the fan, fans' love for the show and they, they want to contribute to it. And I think the wilderness is, um, is, is, is a lot about that. Thanks, JR, for that. It was good. Oh, lovely. Thank you, Jaya. Uh, we had a tweet from uh, Alex, a.k.a. Marshall Alexi. Uh, like all good addicts, you replace one with another. Hello to X-Files. Red hair dye was even involved at one point. Now, Rob, were you unfaithful to Doctor Who? I'm always unfaithful to Doctor Who, but I keep on coming back. Did you get into the X-Files? And, and... I love the X-Files. Did you? I love... I mean, again, it's supernatural. It's UFO. It's conspiracy theory. It's... It's Mulder and Scully smouldering up the screen. It's, uh, it's. I love the X Files. I've followed up with Millennium uh, with Lance Henriksen. I didn't catch fire with uh, uh, Babylon Five, but Babylon Nine Hundred Two One Zero, as I used to call it. Uh, but I will one day. But um, yeah, uh, Doctor Who was off the air, but there was plenty of uh, plenty of television to interest me. Well, I watched um, Deep Sleep Nine. I had the misfortune of going through that only because my wife uh, liked it. What? Yeah, I know. I've caught some DS9 on repeats. Terrible. Oh my god, it's shabby as. It's just awful. 1993, fourth production values, they were out of this world then. But now it's actually dated in some retrospect worse than Doctor Who. It looks awful. It's just, it's videotape, isn't it? 
I think it was shot on film, then video, then then some process, or vice versa. I can't remember. I mean, the the, the look is awful. The acting is awful. Ah, uh, the, the 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 plots are even worse. It it uh, it's laughable. I I know there are fans out there who are currently screaming. Bad luck. It's laughable. But uh, no, I never really got into that too heavily. I watched Red Dwarf. I like. I really like Red Dwarf. But I mean, that's more comedy than sci-fi. But then towards the end of that run, it sort of went a bit... Sci-fi? Which just went a bit down in terms of quality of scripts, to be honest. <laughs> it's ever thus with TV, though, isn't it? Seinfeld? I started watching a lot of Seinfeld. Yes. I think we all coped in our own way, but I was buying the, I was buying the VHSs, so to me... It was never really off the air? It was never really off the air. It was new Doctor Who in some cases. I mean, if you pass on watching out the videos carefully enough, you could watch you know, Doctor Who an episode a week and you'd have your fill there. All year round. Yeah, I even started watching, you know, the tele snap reconstructions of some stories. I remember watching, I was sitting through Marco Polo. Can't do them again. I'd rather listen to them on audio and, and with the linking material. If there's something that's comparable to death, it's watching a reconstruction in my book. My God. With the text going all across the screen describing what they're doing. My sweet Lord. Awful, awful, awful. Now, Mark, uh, just before we go, uh, what have you been watching? What have you been watching Doctor Who-wise? We haven't done this for a while, have we? No, but let's do it again. Okay, so I've actually been watching uh, The Moonbase, or can I do my best Sidemen impression? Please. The Moonbase. They've always got that lilt at the end of a sentence, a word, don't they? Well, a sentence, really. Uh, Do that again. Moonbase. Very nice. Very nice. It it, it vibrates my ears quite nicely. Yes, and speaking of vibrating, it was a scene in uh, the animation of episode three where the Cybermen were walking out of the spaceship. (laughs) Now, can I say the word cyber sniffy? You you just have. I just have, yes. You just have. Uh, I saw an image of it. Somebody posted an image on Twitter with that, oh, it can't be that like that. And it was. They were the David Banks Cybermen, clearly overly, overly emotional about taking over the moon base. Young listeners, cover your ears. But we do know that the cybernization process, process does not involve complete emasculation. Or the Gravitron was working too well. All right, enough of that. What did you think of the moon Um It was okay. It was based under siege. Uh, Troughton was starting to get to grips with the character. What did you think of the animation, other than the uh, the engorged version of the animation? It was uh, very similar to what they did with Tenth Planet, where it was a lot more restrained and reined in. Rain, the terror mm. reined in, I should say. Did you notice that ben, uh, Ben's character seemed to have uh, just a limited number of facial poses, though? I think they all did, though. I mean... Troughton's, they tried to get some sort of ex- more expression in Troughton's craggy face because he has a craggy face. But um, yeah, mm. some, yeah, look, it was better than having a re- tele snap reconstruction like they did for Web of Fear Part 3. At least it was sort of moving. But um, the story itself is it's fairly average, isn't it, really? Well, I've, I've got a gig doing reviews for a, a website, Impulse Gamer. Uh, you can read all my reviews of recent Doctor Who DVDs. And I got a. I have to admit it straight up that I got a freebie copy of the Moonbase to review. Um, so I'd seen the extant episodes uh, on the Lost in Time uh, DVD set, but the ability to watch it from go to woe uh, with the animated versions filling in for the missing episodes, which apparently Phil Morris might or might not have, maybe allegedly expect the unexpected. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, I it, the Moonbase is the perfect cure for insomnia because it's very. Very boring. Is it Dominator's boring? I've not watched the Dominator, so I can't comment. But it is 
very, very dull. And for all the kudos that we've uh, fans have heaped on Enemy of the World and Web of Fear, I think we may need to just take a little step back and think, well, maybe early Troughton isn't Flash. But did the underwater was the underwater menace before this one? Or it was. See now the, the underwater menace. The two episodes that I've seen are quite good. So maybe it's just the script in this one. It's a bit doer, and the sets, while they look nice, are very two. I mean, even for TV, very two dimensional. I mean, the main gravitron room just sort of seems to lack depth, and uh, the story is a little bit nonsensical. Why are the Cybermen? poisoning the sugar why don't they just launch a frontal assault on an unarmed you know civilian base i i don't understand uh the animation i think the 10th planet animation is i prefer that over over this okay uh but you know i suppose again it's only ever an approximation the animation i know i keep on banging on about that but that's just me um good to have it the the documentary uh lunar landings was a bit bland but then that just highlights that most of everyone involved in it is now dead. It, it's workmanlike, isn't it? That's a word I, I, I use. Uh, uh, well, yeah, it sort of, sort of smacks of we're coming to the end of the range. We'll just knock this one out. It, it, listening to Fraser Hines um, sort of reinforced for me that he's almost become the elder, elder statesman of Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, I know he has his, you know, his, uh, the usual stories that he trots out, but I, there's only ever love for the show that Fraser has given in his time involved in, the, in, in, in it. And coming back with the two doctors and the five doctors, and his involvement in the range and the DVD range, and uh, it's uh, an approach that some other higher, you know, more well-known individuals uh, could have, you know, uh, it's an approach that some of them should have taken up. Uh, Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, uh, for slagging Matthew Waterhouse uh, ad nauseum, it should have taken. I think that the, you know, the show gave them a profile, gave them a living. And uh, not that you sort of have to cover it in, in uh, roses and all that sort of thing, but, um, you know, uh, Fraser Hines' approach of, you know, endless enthusiasm and interest uh, is one to be emulated and applauded, I think. At least uh, in the main base, Annika Wells or Polly got uh, a little bit more to do. She actually was using some uh, intellect in, in the story, wasn't she? But it, it just seems so shoehorned into a character. Mm. Oh, well, we they're made of some sort of synthetic, so if we get all these uh, chemicals that I've never actually pronounced before in my life and mix them together, and instead of gassing us with the fumes, we'll be able to throw them on them or spray them. Yes, that's great. <laughs> uh, it, no, it... Look, I mean, it's great to see Troughton, I suppose, and... Uh, well, it is not suppose, it is great to see Troughton, but it's I don't think it's a very good story, and uh, thankfully I didn't have to pay for it, but uh, I probably will never ever watch it again. Okay, but you can read Rob's review of the story on... The, what website is it, Rob? Uh, Impulse Gamer. <laughs> Impulse Gamer. It's, um, it's the story, uh, sorry, the TV episode. It's one of these uh, examples of where the novelization is head and shoulders above this. I have strong memories when I was 12 or 13 of reading The Moon Base on holidays. So that, sorry, was it Doctor Who and the Cybermen? Doctor Who and the Cybermen, yes. That's right. The novelization with the internal illustrations, I think. So, yeah, now I have stronger and happier memories of reading the, the story than actually viewing it. So that's the podcast for now, folks. Um, as always, you can uh, you can reach us at our Gmail account, 42to-gmail.com. Uh, have a conversation with us, a limited 140-character conversation with us on Twitter at 42to-doomsday. We're now um, gracing Facebook. I'm sure Facebook's uh, stock price went up when we joined. Facebook.com slash 42 to Doomsday. Give us your reviews. Give us your feedback. Send us emails. We'd love to hear from you. Rate us on iTunes. Please do. You've only got two so far. That's right. Uh, Make it three and I might, you know, sing a song.
give us an iTunes rating to just bump us up because there's billions of podcasts out there and we want to stick our head above the ruck. Until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. And may your Doctor Who be good Doctor Who. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.